Please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Please read with me the verses in bold. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archaic Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. It is a, a joy and is a privilege and a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm so thrilled just to uh, be able to kind of fill in for this morning. Uh, the, the men and boys retreat, right, is what's happening. Um, I think they added the word boys for Daniel and Brad, right, and for the rest are the men. So I know the first thing you're going to hear from me is you insulting your pastors. So I apologize for that. So this morning, we are spending time in, in a passage that is very familiar, but also yet quite obscure at the same time. It's a passage that, uh, especially uh, just during, you know, December and, and during that time of year, you tend to like, you tend to hear this passage. You tend to, to at least think about it for a moment, but, but typically... Uh, you kind of overlook a lot of what's going on. There's a lot actually happening in this passage, and there's a lot even application-wise for our world today that we can find in Matthew 2 as well. So I'm going to pray briefly, and then we will dig into the Word together. But again, thank you so much for uh, just giving me the privilege of being able to be here and to bring the Word to you guys this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for welcoming us into this space, that by your grace and by the blood of your Son, Jesus, we can come before you and worship you. We thank you and praise you, God, for your church, for your sustaining of both Grace Church Sacramento and also for the surrounding churches in the area. We thank you, Lord, for your presence in those places and that you allow feeble people like us to come before you and, and be covered by your grace and your mercy. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few years ago, um, there was a 
documentary uh, that came out uh, on this guy, Alex Honnold, right? So he's a local Sacramento guy. He's a Miraloma grad, if you didn't know that. Um, and so Alex Honnold was the first guy to, to free solo, right? That's the phrase, free solo. I actually haven't watched a documentary. I'm terrified of heights. But Alex Honnold was the first guy to free solo El Capitan, Yosemite. It's a beautiful rock. It's a very steep rock. Um, and he free soloed that, did it without any equipment. Uh, in I think four hours, I think was the time that he did on that. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. So then this, this documentary was done to kind of document that and document his journey. Um, when I was in high school, I would go and rock climb a lot in Joshua Tree. So I grew up in the Coachella Valley, so in Palm Springs kind of area, um, out in the desert there. And then we would go to Joshua Tree, we would climb there. Um, and one thing that you learn when you rock climb is that if you're climbing up a rock, and you are grabbing on, like, for dear life, every step that you go, and you're trying to use too much of your hands and your arms, you find that about halfway up, you will have no energy left to climb. Our tendency is to use our arms. Our tendency is to dig and to dig, and we think that, like, oh, man, this is, like, this is going to help me. But in reality, it actually deeply hurts us. When we grasp really tightly, we think that we're giving ourselves the extra boost that we need to help us, the extra boost to make it to the end. But in reality, what we actually need to do is let off a bit. What we need to do is to kind of relax. And actually in doing so, in letting off, in giving ourselves you know, to the rock, so to speak, um, that actually is the thing that enables us to make it through the climb. And so today, this morning, we're going to talk about this kind of idea, this juxtaposition of, of grasping versus giving, that our posture, our tendency in life is to grasp, that especially when things get stressful, when things get tight, uh, when money gets tight, when family gets uh, really stressful and anxious, when, when we, we, our church family uh, annoys us and bugs us, you know, to, to the end, right? It's like when we get into those kind of spaces, we tend to just grasp and we tend to to grab on tighter we tend to like especially even in like political debate right we tend to just 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 push back even harder against the people that we disagree with but in reality ultimately what we're going to see is that although our posture in life our tendency is to grasp that ultimately what it is that the lord calls us to do is to give so if you want like hand motions for it, right, it's like grasping versus giving, grasping versus giving. So if you find yourself making those hand motions throughout the week, I hope that you think of this. We think the solution to these things, to when these problems arise, is to grasp tighter. And the story of, of, of Jesus' flee to Egypt, as we're looking at this morning, again, very much summarizes kind of what's happening in that dynamic. We see two main actors in the story. So we see Jesus and his family, and we see King Herod in his kingdom, so to speak. We see the, the Messiah who had been born to Mary and Joseph, and we see them fleeing out as, as refugees to another land. And then we see King Herod, who is already the well-established king in his land. And so this event in, in, in history, again, displays for us that ultimately our heart is out to get what it wants, right? Naturally, we're out to get what we want, but that the posture you and I were designed for was actually to give away what we want, right? So like our natural tendency is to get what we want, but what our Lord calls us to do actually is to give away what we want, and that we actually find, ironically, we find life in doing so. 
And so it is, again, such a joy to be here in this. I know the history of this church very well, and, and, and that's just been a phenomenal joy. Having served in the Korean church for a couple of years um, is a wonderful experience. If you grew up in the Korean church, you might be like, you had a wonderful experience in the Korean church? Um, I did. It was fantastic. And so um, it is a joy here. But I think that in terms of the history of this congregation, I think it actually fits remarkably well, ultimately, in what you guys have had to do as congregations and also what the Lord ultimately calls us to do. And so as I proclaim this to you, I want you guys to be encouraged as well that uh, from afar, we've been able to see that ultimately a lot of you have taken up this posture of, of what our Lord calls us to. And so I'm so thankful for that and so blessed and honored even to see that. And so as we look at this passage again, we're going to see this dynamic at work where, uh, as a professor in seminary of mine often talked about and told me, was, was it's the upside-down kingdom of God, right? It's, it's, it's that we think that a kingdom is to be a particular certain way, and a kingdom of the world is a certain way that you, you fight to, to gain power, and then you fight even harder at times to retain that power. But ultimately, our God calls us to the opposite, to give up those things for his sake. So our world celebrates those who grasps for more. The kingdoms of our world, right, celebrates those who grasp for more, but the kingdom of God actually celebrates those who give, who grasp for less, right, who, who are able to, to, to give themselves even for the sake of the lesser and for the weak. And so in this big picture, again, we're going to see that, that grasping to get what we want is not what we were designed for. Giving what we want is actually what we were designed for. So we're going to see two things, grasping destroys life, giving brings. Grasping destroys life, giving brings life. So our first point, grasping destroys life. So Matthew here is writing to a Jewish audience. He's making it clear to his audience that Jesus is, is, is not only a Moses or a type of Moses, but he's the Moses, right? He's the one that Moses' whole life and ministry was meant to point to. He's the new deliverer that was coming to save his people for the, from their sin. He's the one that was prophesied about on all pages of the Old Testament. Jesus, at, at one point at the end of Luke, even tells his disciples everything in the Old Testament, all of that was about me. So all of this was pointing forward to Jesus, and so Matthew is making it really explicit and clear to his audience that that's who this guy is. Here we see an angel of the Lord who comes and tells Joseph to flee with Mary and Jesus to Egypt as King Herod is going to begin a search for this infant Jesus to ultimately destroy him. Herod hears this news of a king, and he becomes insecure, right? He becomes self-conscious. He wants to then take out that king. Even the region that Jesus belongs to, there actually only would have been a handful of, of children in that region, um, but it was enough just to even know that there was a potential baby who was going to be a king that made Herod nervous enough to start to grasp for power, to retain his power, and to ultimately put to death those who were in his way. Now, this actually isn't out of character. There's, uh, it's not in the scriptures, but there are certain historical accounts outside of the scriptures that actually testify to an event in history where Herod was, became self-conscious about his three sons taking up his throne one day. And his response to that is that he actually killed his three sons. And so this was not out of Herod's character to seek to destroy even kids so he could retain his power. That's how like self-conscious Herod was about his power. And so he hears about the birth of the king. He's like, all right, we got to take this guy out. Herod's kingdom is, is again, seemingly being rivaled by this, this, this newborn infant, by this coming Messiah. And so he immediately wants to stamp it down and put an end to it. That's what he's trying to do. He sees that it's happening and he wants to put it to 
an end. Herod had a great kingdom. Herod had an established kingdom. Herod had, had one of the greater kingdoms in the entire world, and all the military strength he probably wanted to back it, and yet, even the news of an infant who was born that could potentially take up that throne and rival his kingdom was enough for him to, re to respond in this way. Herod was doing what? He was grasping. He was grasping. He had power, but it wasn't enough power. And because it wasn't enough power, he then wanted to retain that power and even sought the death of infants for the sake of his power, just so he could keep his kingdom. He was grasping. He was grasping for power, for control, for fame, for dominance. And, and we see then this unfold in a really horrendous way. And in his fury, again, he sends out this order to kill all the male children in Bethlehem. Again, in the eyes of our world and how we often approach things, when we're out to get the things that we want, we, we tend to find ourselves in similar scenarios, not the same scenario, but similar scenarios to Herod, and we tend to seek to justify that and to do all that we can to justify that. Like, okay, well, yeah, you know, you have a kingdom. It's really well established. Like, sure, you know, like, this isn't the greatest move, but, like, you can go ahead and do this because you've got to protect your kingdom, right? You've got, you got to keep your kingdom. You've got to keep the power that you have. But this is horrendous, right? Because as Herod seeks to protect his kingdom, because what he is about is power, what he is about is control, what he is about is dominance, what he is about is getting exactly what he wants for himself, that even that that's because that's the posture of his heart, then he's willing to take out even the weak, even the defenseless, for himself, for the sake of himself, for the sake of his kingdom, to protect his kingdom. He grasped for power, and in his grasping for power, he willingly takes these steps to eliminate those who stand in his path. Years ago, there was, or, I mean, about a century ago, there was this interview that was done uh, with this guy, J.D. Rockefeller. And if you're familiar with J.D. Rockefeller, he was a guy who lived late 1800s, early 1900s, um, and he was incredibly wealthy, like, like stupid rich, like Jeff Bezos rich. Like, he was very, very wealthy. And there was this point where he was being interviewed by this woman, and she uh, was asking him about money and, and asking him, she asked him this question about, she said, okay, JD, how much money is enough money? Like, how much is enough? What is the point, the threshold that you get to to where that much money is enough money? Now, now at one point, JD Rockefeller actually owned 10% of the wealth in the United States belonged to him. 10% of all money in the United States belonged to J.D. Rockefeller in the early 1900s. And so he gets this question, right? She asks, how much money is enough money? And we relate to that, right? We're always like, we're looking for raises. And now as gas prices go up, we're looking for more raises. I mean, we're trying to like, we're always trying to get those things. Like these are, this is a natural inclination and desire in our hearts. And so he gets this question and his answer tells us a lot about Herod. It also tells us a lot about ourselves in the world today. And his answer to her question, how much money is enough? His answer was just a little bit more. He had 10% of all of the wealth in America. And his answer to how much money is enough money is a little bit more. I, I relate deeply to that. I hope you relate to that in your heart. But I relate deeply to that. And when Jesus, later in Matthew 16, Jesus touches on this, and, and, par and partially, you know, it seems like he has at least Herod in mind in part when he says this in Matthew 16, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will shall, shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in his glory of his Father, and then he will pray each person according to what he has done. 
Again, Herod is grasping. And in his grasping, he's forfeiting his own soul. We relate to this, right? Like, I'm sure none of you in this room have, and, and I certainly don't have the power that King Herod had, but at the same time, we relate to this deeply. When we, when we tell ourselves, if only I had this certain thing, then my life would be much better. If only I had that particular job, then my life would be much better. If only I had this amount of money, then my life would be much better. If only my spouse treated me this way, then my life would be much better. See, we long for these things, and we're willing even to, to, to push those aside around us for the sake of achieving the things that we long for and want for ourselves. But Herod had everything, and in his having everything, it wasn't quite enough, and he sought for more. And in doing so, he sought even to kill others and destroy life in doing so. So grasping ultimately leads us to destroying those around us, not just ourselves, but also those that surround us. So this passage is like really bleak. This is really bleak, and you're kind of like, you know, for like a guest preacher, it's kind of odd that you would choose like maybe one of the most bleak passages um, in, the, in the New Testament ultimately to preach on. But in this, in this passage and in, in, in this quotation that Matthew then gives later, he, he quotes this passage from Jeremiah 31 that although this is bleak, there is still hope. There's still hope for a new day to come. And in Luke 1, we see this thing, it's a famous passage, the Song of Mary called the Magnificat. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. If you've never read it before, you're going to see it up on the screen, but also go home today and read it after the service this afternoon. But in Luke 1, she says this, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So this is a bleak passage. In Matthew 2, yet, yet, there's still promise and there's still hope that one day God is going to step in on behalf of his people. That even these families that suffer in Matthew 2 because of Herod's actions, that one day God is going to come in and provide redemption for his people. In the midst of this great destruction, we see that, see that there is still great hope that God, that one day God will deliver and that he will right every wrong and correct the impression and injustice that we encounter in the world today. Again, even that passage from Jeremiah 31 that, that Matthew's quoting from in, in this chapter, we, we see that, that at the end of, of Jeremiah 31, we see that God delivers those from exile. He brings those back to the land that, that God, just as he had done many times beforehand in salvation history, would bring blessing from disaster. So things are bleak. And things may be bleak for you right now. The last two years have been pretty bleak at points. And yet, we still have hope because our God delivers his people. We still have hope because God corrects injustice, he corrects oppression, and he does away with those things for the sake of his people. So Herod's grasping leads to destruction, as we've seen, but then we also see that, 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 that God is in the midst of this, and he's bringing life, and we see that giving ultimately brings life. As Herod gives his dec this decree, the family of Jesus then flees to Egypt. Again, as refugees in a time of uncertainty and chaos, they flee to a foreign land. If you came here to the United States from a different place, were born in a different country, Jesus was a refugee at this point in his life, which means that you, had, you know a lot more <laughs> about that aspect of Jesus' life than I do. Jesus went to a foreign land with his family. They were dependent upon a different people to provide jobs and wealth for them. Like they were dependent upon other people who spoke a different language than them 
They were living in that land. They were refugees for a time being. This is the Messiah. Again, this is the king, right? So like the king, which is, you know, Herod back in his own land is seeking to, to, to fight, to retain his power, to keep his control. But then the true king is a refugee in a foreign land. That's what's happening in this scene. They're dependent upon the Egyptians for, again, for jobs, for, for money, for, for a roof over their heads. That's what they're dependent upon. And then just as God called Moses back to Egypt he, to begin his plan of rescuing his people from slavery there in, in actually an identical way in the wording here in Israel. And they end up in this, this land, in this, this region called Galilee and in this weird obscure place called Nazareth. All of this was a part of God's plan and to continue to paint this picture for us that our God did not enter this world in splendor and royalty, but actually in poverty. And how that actually needs to shape both how we view and find themselves in the world and also how we are to find ourselves in the world today. God did not enter into the world in glory, in splendor, in political power, but he entered into the world in poverty. That's what our God did. And what's interesting, too, about this last verse in this passage where Matthew writes about uh, this this to fulfill what the prophets had spoken, there actually isn't any particular prophecy in the Old Testament that says that the Messiah will be born in Nazareth. But what he's referring to and saying is that all of the Old Testament paints clear the idea that God was not going to come dependent upon the political power of this world. He was not coming in that way. He was not going to just step on in and take up the throne of, of, of Herod and then just rule in the way that Herod was ruling. God's Messiah, his chosen one, his eternal son, this eternal son of God was born again into an obscure and lower status. If you remember Nathaniel, right, when he meets Jesus, what's his first resp- or when he hears of Jesus, his first response to hearing of Jesus is like, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's the response. Jesus was born into an obscure and lower status status, not a status of high power and might. And so why then? What's the point in that? It's like, okay, well, I could see like, you know, that that's cool, I guess. But like, what is, what is the motive and the point, right, for God to be born into an obscure and lower status? The point is that he doesn't need to grasp to accomplish his purposes like Herod did. He doesn't need to grasp to accomplish his purposes like the kings of our world and like we do. He doesn't need to grasp at the expense of the weak to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need to do that because he is God. He doesn't need to just wipe out those that are in his path just to achieve what it is that he is out to achieve. Again, we're seeing a very vivid picture of this right over in Ukraine. God does not need to do that. God doesn't do that. And in fact, he flips the whole thing on its head. He becomes one of lower status and defending the status of those who are poor, weak, obscure, those who are hungry. Like he, He's there to help them, to care for them, and ultimately to bring salvation for his people. And it's... It's funny, right? When you go through like the Old Testament, you spend time in the Old Testament, you, 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 you think about, you know, the, the, the Israelites as they're walking with God and they're in the wilderness and then they're in the land and then they're in exile and you just, you, you follow this whole thing happening and, and, and there's different points throughout the Old Testament where the Israelites are kind of like, you know, getting kind of like high up on themselves. Like, man, we're pretty good. We're pretty solid. 
that the people of God are like this really special, awesome people. But in reality, as we're reminded in Deuteronomy, as we're reminded in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the weak, the the church, he chose the weak to shame the strong. He even explicitly tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy, they're like, like, man, we're pretty good, right? And his response is like, uh, no, like you guys are actually the least of all of the armies and the nations out there. So not only does God say like, no, you're all right. He says, you're like the bottom of like the pack. Like you're, you're bad. Like you guys are pretty feeble and weak compared to the nations of the world. That's what he says. Because God doesn't need to grasp for power to accomplish his purposes. He does the opposite of that. And when we seek our way, when we seek status, when we seek power, we, we, we willingly justify doing so, even at the expense of other people, right? Even in the corporate world, like in, 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 even in our families, like we are willing to do these things, even at the expense of those around us. I'm, I'm willing even to, I love baseball, right? Huge baseball guy. Um, not a Giants fan, I'm sorry, but I'm a huge baseball guy. And I know, so that gets people. There's a lot of Giants fans out here. So I'm a huge baseball guy. When I get home, I would love nothing more than to just chill and watch baseball. But guess who's also at my house? My wife and my daughter. Not my house, their house. My wife and my daughter are there. (laughs) I know, see, you're seeing it. You're seeing it actually happening in real time. I'm happy you caught that. Oh, Lord. (laughs) My tendency is to just do what I want, right? But what God calls us to do is to get down and to serve, right? to give up our way for the sake of another, and that actually in doing that, we find life in him. Again, go back to, to Luke chapter one, right, to the Magnificat. He, he chooses the lesser, and he deliberately chooses the lesser so that the vulnerable and the weak would be lifted up, so that the people of God would be brought redemption through the blood of Jesus. We're, we're chosen to be here, not because we're like hot stuff, but because we're the least of all. God uses the least of all to bless the nations and the people of the world. That's what he does. If you're sitting here and, you, and, and maybe you're visiting and you're looking around the room and you're like, this is a weird place. Like, that's kind of probably the reaction that you should have, you know? It's a different place. The church is, is a different place. It's not, what's the phrase? Like, it's not a museum for, for you know, for, for saints. I mean, it's a hospital for sinners. And that is who we are in this building in room together. Our God, as demonstrated in his incarnation, is not dependent on worldly power going his way for his will in this world to be done. Just as Herod, again, was using his power for great evil, God's purposes, even despite that, still prevailed. And if you study or you look at or reflect on church history at any point in your life, which I highly encourage you to do, you'll find that in the history of the church, the church is always at its strongest when it's on the fringes. Always. The church compromises actually when it has power, when it has political power. But when the church is on the fringes in history, it has always done its best. When the church is genuinely persecuted, when people are are martyred and killed for the faith, the church has always actually been its strongest. Why? Because again, God doesn't depend upon the powers of this world for his accomplishment or for his will to be accomplished. He uses us in even, even in, in, in the lowest and lowest of, of, of extremes and circumstances to accomplish his purposes and his will in the world. And in Matthew 16, in verses 24, 25, uh, Jesus reminds us ultimately that, that it is those who, who give up their life that will find it. 
Those who seek to save their life, seek to preserve, seek to grasp, those are the ones who will lose their life. But those who, who give up their life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of one another, those are the ones ultimately that find their life in Christ. We think that's not the path that will bring us life, but Jesus confidently tells us and shows us that that is the path that brings us life. Grasping for what we want destroys us, and it destroys those that get in the way of us, but giving ultimately brings life and is the way that you and I were meant to live in the world today, to give ourselves up for the sake of one another. And so as we close this time together as we just kind of reflect on this passage. I want you just to think about, uh, it'll be up there on the screen, Philippians chapter 2. Um, and Philippians chapter 2 is, is this beautiful reminder, ultimately, of what it is that God himself has done. Our tendency is to look at that passage of Philippians 2 and to say, like, I'm really glad Jesus did that, and like, that's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. Because yes, we are really glad that Jesus has done that. He has redeemed us. He has bought a people for himself by his precious blood. And yet, he calls us to live in a similar way. To live in that way is what Paul calls us to do. To live in the way of Christ. To give ourselves up for the sake of one another. I got to be ordained into our denomination as a pastor uh, over a year ago, I think. I don't know. But yes, over a year ago. Whenever February of 2021 was, I got ordained. So I got ordained. And Brian Suey, who's one of our uh, uh, on-campus ministry guys out in the Bay Area, wonderful guy, um, he gave me this prayer at my ordination. And he prayed that I would become the least of all. That's a beautiful prayer. Because that's the prayer ultimately that we should share for ourselves and for one another, that we would look at one another, that you would look at one another in Grace Sacramento and outside of this community, and that you would become the least of all. That you not be here to flex and hold yourself up, right, but to become the least of all. And so as we think about this passage, as we reflect on what it is that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, as we reflect on, on this, this, this tragic and yet miraculous story of, of, of God's salvation in the midst of tragedy, that as we reflect on these things, if you want to even seek to begin to apply this passage, well, think of people in your life that you cannot stand and serve them this week. Think of a coworker that you want to spend zero time around and go serve that person this week. Find someone in this congregation who is known for their giving and give to them this week and provide them relief and comfort and help. See, when we become the least of all, and especially when you become the least of all in this congregation together, I mean, what happens is kind of, it's like a Golden State Warriors kind of thing. You got like a deep bench of people, right? That's what the Warriors have. And ultimately, that's what the church is called to have as well, that when we seek to serve one another and outdo one another in our service, when we seek to do that, that is where true life is found. And man, is this and would it continue to be a beautiful place of a church if that continues to happen here. And I know it has happened. And the encouragement is for it to continue, for you guys to continue to follow in those footsteps. And so as we, we close in this passage today, as we then take time to get to the table together, I want us to reflect on this passage of Philippians 2. I want us to reflect on what it is that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf and the way that he has stepped in on behalf of us and the way that you and I are actually called to replicate that calling in the world today. And maybe to serve your family, and maybe to serve your spouse this week, and maybe to serve your kids this week, maybe to serve your neighbor this week, maybe to serve your roommate who just like 
put subwoofers on, on, his, on his bedroom walls and it's just driving you insane. <laughs> that may be it. But our call is to, to take the low road, so to speak, to become lesser for the sake of one another and doing that because that's what Christ has done for us. And that is the way that we are called to live in and that is the way that brings life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the gathering of your church. And we thank you, God, that in this moment, we're going to go to the table and reflect more on your life, death, and resurrection. We thank you and praise you, God, for who you are, for what it is that you have done. And just as we sang earlier, God, heaven was perfect without us, and yet you still came down and brought us into that. What an amazing truth, an amazing reality that is. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.